Welcome to episode 18 of the Beat Picture Podcast. My name is Bidemio Logunde. This podcast presents fascinating cybersecurity topics, news, and events, and how the lessons we can learn from them might affect us and influence our decisions, thoughts, opinions, and lifestyle choices on a daily basis, as well as how they all fit into the bigger picture of online security in this digital age. Today on the show, I'll be presenting a case of how a former track and field coach stalked female athletes using social media, and also how a mother and her daughter managed to unsuccessfully rig a homecoming election in West Florida, which then landed them both in jail. At the end of the episode, I will provide some recommendations and takeaways from both incidents. Thanks for joining us. Let's get to it. On Wednesday, April 7, 2021, 28-year-old Steve Waith, W-A-I-T-H-E, a former track and field coach, was arrested in Chicago and he faces up to five years in prison for attempting to solicit nude photos of his former athletes by cyber-stalking them using fake social media accounts. He was charged with one count of cyber-stalking and one count of wire fraud. Details of the wire fraud charge was not disclosed by the FBI, so I would only be presenting the cyber-stalking aspect of the entire case. So who's Steve Waith and what brought us to this point in his life? Prior to starting his coaching career, Steve was a college athlete at Penn State University, where he competed in the men's triple jump championship back in 2014. In 2018, he served as an interim coach at the University of Tennessee and then joined Northeastern University as an assistant coach for vertical jumps. Steve also worked as a track and field coach at Penn State, where he went to school um, as a college student. He also worked as a track and field coach at Illinois Institute of Technology and also at Concordia University in Chicago. So the Department of Justice allegation against Steve states that while he was a coach at Northeastern University in Boston between October 2018 and February 2019, he would ask for athletes' phones during competitions and practices, and the excuse he would give was that he wanted to film their form. So this was the excuse that Steve would give to these female athletes that, okay, let me... um record you while you're running and then they would give him their phone and instead of recording them it would actually go into their picture gallery and be scrolling through their phones so while he had access to their phones he would scroll through and forward explicit photos of these female athletes to himself while holding the phone as if he was recording video so this was how it was getting nude photos from these female athletes' phones. And that's just the first part of his scheme. So as later on in the episode, you would see how this all unravels. So about a year later, in February 2020, he then contacted current and former members of the Northeastern track team through at least three fake Instagram accounts associated with fictitious names such as Katie Janovich, um, privacy protector, and Anon, followed by a string of random numbers. So to summarize, between October 2018 
and February 2019, Steve worked as a coach, a track and field coach at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. While he was training these female athletes, he would pretend to um, record them while they were running. But meanwhile, he was looking through their phones to find out if they had explicit photos. And again, that there's nothing bad with having some kind of photos on your phone. A lot of people have that, which they most times don't intend to share with anyone. It's possible they were doing some diet regimen and they wanted to track their progress. And of course, they would be only, they would only be able to do that if they had, let's say, some kind of before and after photos. So those were the kind of pictures Steve was looking for on these athletes' phones. And then he would forward them to himself. So a year later, after doing that crazy scheme, he then created fake social media accounts to then contact these women and pretend as if it was someone that came across their photos online and he wanted to help them to remove those explicit compromising photos from the internet. And the crazy thing was he would then ask them to send nude photos to him while using this fake Instagram account so that it could do a reverse image search or some kind of image scrubbing. So, like I said, the first part of this crazy, weird, pervert scheme was to steal these women's pictures from their phones. And then he created a social media account. I guess he allowed a year to pass so that they would immediately connect this second phase of the scheme to him. Then he reached out to these women, hundreds of messages um, to several women saying, these are the pictures of you I found, which, of course, he didn't find them on the internet. He stole them a year ago. So now he's contacting them, trying to get them to send him more nude photos so that he can use it to then do some image scrubbing or reverse image search, according to him, so that he could remove all those compromising photos from the internet. When some of the women started to suspect that Steve Waits could actually be involved, um, I'm guessing because maybe they started contacting each other, that, um, did you hear this crazy stuff going on that someone found their pictures on the internet, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm, I'm guessing they all started to realize that the only thing they had in common was that they used to be coached by Steve Waste. So that was the only way they figured, okay, these pictures on my phone that he said he found, I never sent it to anyone. There was no way this picture could be on the internet. And then they probably recall that at some point when he was their coach, he would ask them for their phones to film them and maybe a few women saw him scrolling through their phones instead of recording them and so when some of them started to suspect that he was actually involved he began to use the same scheme he used to steal their phones to divert suspicion from himself so using those fake social media accounts he then told one of the victims that he had done some digging and found that Steve Waite, so he was pretending to be someone else all this while. So he was using that persona to contact one of the victims to tell her 
that Steve Wiz is not associated with the IP address that was taking the photos. So you see how he was trying to kind of excuse, exonerate himself using this same fake social media scheme that he used to steal their accounts and then contact them to send him more nude photos and so on. So investigations revealed that later in May 2020, his internet browser history included searches for information such as how to hack Snapchat accounts and how to avoid someone tracing a fake Instagram account back to himself. So he started to see that his initial scheme was beginning to unravel. So in May of last year, he tried to change his tactics. So he was looking for ways to hack into someone's um, Snapchat account because a lot of people use Snapchat and a lot of people take pictures on Snapchat that they don't intend to send. They just take the pictures and save them. So again, people that do some from diet regimen or they want to just keep track of their body and how they look, they would take pictures using Snapchat because Snapchat has this filters that actually makes pictures look better so they'll take these pictures and most people don't send those pictures to others or even to their boyfriends or girlfriends they would just save the pictures so steve was hoping to be able to hack into someone's snapchat account and then steal those saved pictures because there was a high probability that his former athletes would also have compromising pictures, explicit pictures on their saved Snapchat folders. Between June 21st and October 3, 2020, Steve cyberstalked at least one female athlete at Northeastern University via messages on social media and also using an anonymized phone number and an intrusion into a Snapchat account, pretending to be Snapchat support team. So when he was looking for how to successfully hack into a Snapchat account, he actually found one method that would work and he used it to get into a female athlete's Snapchat account and, and then pre, pre, um, pretended to be a member of Snapchat support team. So he sent this female athlete at least seven nude or semi-nude photos of other victims so the goal was to pretend that he was trying to help her find the origin of her own photos. So he told her that her pictures have been stolen on the internet. And then he sent her other pictures of other victims, nude and semi-nude photos. So the goal was also to maybe scare these um, female athletes into thinking that it's actually true. Her pictures might be all over the internet, so she needs to get Steve, or rather the fake persona Steve was using, to help her find all these other photos and delete them from the internet. So Steve went as far as contacting that athlete's boyfriend on Instagram in a desperate attempt to get more nude photos of that athlete. So he told the boyfriend that someone had access to her intimate photos and that he needed the boyfriend's help to make sure that nothing of that nature happened. And then he later sent the boyfriend two of the athlete's nude photos. So as a form of um, 
a way to convince him that he was telling the truth or some other twisted logic, um, who knows. Steve also created a second fake profile with the name Catherine Svoboda. And then he used both accounts, the first Katie Janovich account and the second Catherine Svoboda account to then contact athletes for athlete research or body development studies. So we see here that Steve is again um, revamping his methods. He first used the, the stealing of pictures from athletes' phones method. Then he used the fake Snapchat um, support team method. And now he's revamping his methods again to say, okay, he's going to pretend to be this scientist that is conducting body development study. That was literally the, the phrase he used, body development study. So he would send emails to all these female athletes and tell them he's conducting some, some body development study for science and they need to send him pictures of themselves in bathing suits, in running gear, in so many different um, athletes' gear, but they should show as much skin as possible. So again, another twisted technique that Steve was using just to be able to get explicit photos, nude or semi-nude photos of female athletes. He even suggested to the um, to the athletes in those emails that their images would not be shared, and he offered them gift cards if they would participate in that study. And in attach, um, he attached pictures of that fake Katie lady so that the athletes would know the kind of pictures they were supposed to send. So he attached fake nude photos of Katie to maybe convince these women that, okay, if this person is sending her own nude photos, then there's some kind of legitimacy to this, um, or to this crazy study. So, so far, investigators have identified more than 10 victims of this so-called body development study and over 300 related nude and semi-nude photos in Steve's email account. Back in February 2019, Steve was fired from Northeastern University because of an investigation into his inappropriate conduct toward female student athletes. So, way before all this craziness began with asking women to send him nude photos or stealing women's nude photos from their phones. It was actually investigated based on reports of inappropriate conduct towards female student athletes back at Northeastern University in Boston. The impacted students were provided with resources for counseling and holistic support for their well-being and then the university police worked with federal law enforcement in that case. So it was actually something that got on the, on, on the radar of federal law enforcement agents. And then they actually got assistance from the university police. And that led to Steve being fired. And that was back in February 2019, more than two years ago. Shortly after he was fired from Northeastern University, Steve was hired by Concordia University in Chicago as an assistant track coach. In a statement by Concordia University's spokesperson, Steve had only been employed as an assistant track and field coach from September of 2019 to January 8, 2020. And the school was not aware of any reports of misconduct during that time. 
I don't know how universities um, conduct their hiring processes, or maybe it's different for track and field coaches. But if someone was fired from a university more than six months ago, and that incident led to some federal law enforcement agents being involved and university police um, and female student athletes testified against this guy. But then he was still hired by another university later that year. So maybe they actually did their due diligence and still went ahead and hired Steve anyway. Or they hired him without knowing his background. Or they hired him without contacting his former employers to just find out, okay, what kind of person is this guy? What do we need to know about him? Even if it was just allegations that didn't lead anywhere, that's still something an institution would like to know about someone they intend to put in charge of female student athletes. But I don't know, like I said, I don't know how these institutions carry out hiring processes. Um, the Department of Justice is actively looking for additional victims to come forward. If you believe that you may be a victim of the allegations in this case, please visit www.fbi.gov forward slash tfcoach. That's www.fbi.gov forward slash tfcoach. The cyber-stalking charge provides for a sentence of up to five years in prison, three years of supervised release, and a fine of $250,000. The wire fraud charge, which, like I mentioned earlier, the FBI did not release details into that charge, it provides for a sentence of up to 20 years in prison, three years of supervised release, and a fine of $250,000. So that's all I have for the first segment on this case of cyber-stalking by a former track and field coach who was attempting to get nude photos and semi-nude photos from his former student athletes. After the break, I would get into the second segment where I talk about how a mother and her daughter rigged a homecoming election in West Florida. Stay with us. Welcome back. So every year, students in American high schools, universities, and even some churches have a tradition of welcoming back former students as part of the celebrations of the institution's existence, so like an annual Founders Day. In addition to welcoming back former students, there's also this tradition of electing the homecoming court. So like the name suggests, homecoming is when everyone um, figuratively comes back home to the institution of where they learned and there's some emphasis all over the world on a place where you actually learned knowledge. So the, the, the Latin word alma mater literally means um, nursing mother. So it's usually used to describe schools and a school that gave you education, you should um, every year come back to honor that school 
So that's where the old tradition of homecoming um, began. So every year, in addition to welcoming back former students, there's also this tradition of electing the homecoming court, which usually consists of a king and a queen. So these are students who are completing their final year of study at that school, and they're also called seniors. So if it's an high school, if it's a high school, then they would be the final year students of that high school. If it's a university, it would be the final year students, usually undergraduates, in that university. So typically, high school seniors are 17 to 18 year old students, and in universities, seniors are usually between 21 and 23 years old. So local rules um, usually determine when the homecoming king and queen are crowned. Sometimes the announcement is made at a pep rally, a school assembly, a public ceremony. Um, sometimes it's during a homecoming football game. Um, it's sometimes held at a dance or some other school event. Sometimes um, the previous year's king and queen are invited back to crown their successors. So that's, again, all part of the tradition. And the way this um, king and queen are selected, it's usually classmates who nominate students who have done a lot to contribute to their school. Then the entire student body in that school would then vote for the nominees. So once the candidates are announced, the, the entire student body votes for the king and queen. Voting is often conducted by secret ballot, but more recently, voting has been done via voting software running on computers and smartphones. In March of this year, a mother-daughter duo was charged in Florida for breaking into a school district's computer system to rig the elections for homecoming queen. So Laura Rose Carroll, um, that's the mother. She worked as an assistant principal at Bellevue Elementary School in the Escambia County School District in Cantonment, Florida. So Escambia County is in West Florida. It's right on the border with um, Alabama. It's um, the oldest county in Florida. And... So Laura works as an assistant principal in Bellevue Elementary School. So that same school district is where her daughter attended high school. So her daughter is Emily Rose Grover. She's 17 years old. She attended Tate High School in the same school district where her mother serves as an assistant principal. So again, Laura, the mother, she's 50 years old. She was an assistant principal at Bellevue Elementary School. Laura's daughter, Emily, 17-year-old Emily, attended Tate High School, which is about nine miles from Bellevue Elementary School. Both schools are in the same school district. So last October, Tate High School, um, the student body of approximately 2,000 students, were given two days to vote for the homecoming court. And that was from October 28th to October 30. To cast their votes and the whole procedure surrounding that. So the voting software they used for that was Election Runner. And that was the system they've been using for the whole time 
for anything related to elections for that school and the entire school district. Um, election runner requires students to enter their school ID and their date of birth before they can vote on any election, whether it's homecoming court or some other election that they have to vote on. So on Saturday, October 31, 2020, Emily was crowned homecoming queen under the bright football field lights at her school. She accepted a bouquet of red roses and also um, ivory and black sashes proclaiming her title. She took pictures, she posted those pictures on the, um, on social media, and that was that. Meanwhile, sometime after the vote closed on October 30th, before her coronation, representatives from Election Runner contacted Emily's school to warn that dozens of votes had been flagged as fraudulent. So the reason they gave was that 117 votes were observed to have come from the same IP address within a short period of time. So the way um, voting systems work, um, they have all these built-in systems and techniques to detect fraud. So in a basic um, internet connection, for example, a home Wi-Fi, every device connected to that home Wi-Fi has a unique IP address. That's the way you can figure out, okay, if someone is hugging all the internet and not allowing any, everybody else to do stuff, then you can actually pinpoint whose device, is it the toddler's iPad or the mom's phone or the dad's um, computer or the smart TV in the master bedroom. So basically, to be able to figure out and identify which device is misbehaving or if someone in your or across the street is connecting to your home Wi-Fi, you can actually pinpoint it and then kick the person off. So a unique IP address does so much to be able to identify devices on the network. And in the case of voting systems, that's actually how you can identify when there's some fraud going on. So again, one factor is the IP address. Another factor is the time frame. So 117 votes were cast from the same IP address within a short period of time. So it's it's kind of logical when you say, okay, students, about 2,000 students should cast their votes for homecoming king and homecoming queen. It goes by logic that, okay, every student would have their own phones or computers. That means different IP addresses. Even if they all vote at the same time or within the same one-hour time frame, all the votes would be seen as coming from different IP addresses. It's possible for votes to come from one IP address or multiple votes from one IP address in the case of maybe students don't have um, their own smartphones or laptops. So they go into a library or the school library or a public library to cast their votes. So in that case, like I mentioned earlier, election runner, the systems makes you enter your student ID, then your date of birth, then you cast your vote. So it's possible if two students have the same date of birth, maybe they are twins, 
or they just happen to have the same birthdays, but they would definitely have different student IDs. So that's why that system makes you enter two things to identify you as, okay, you can vote. So even if they go into a public library and maybe 20 students use one computer to vote, it might show them as voting from the same IP address, but it would show them as 20 different students. And of course, they wouldn't cast their votes at the same time because one student would log in, cast their vote, log out. Then the second student log in, cast their vote, log out. So the timestamp would be different. And of course, it's going to show that these are different students because they would end up um, entering their student IDs and their date of birth. So it's not just one student ID. So that was the first instance where election runner identified fraud, 117 votes from one IP address within a short period of time. Additional evidence showed that a total of 246 votes had been cast from accounts accessed by either the computers inside Laura and Emily's house in Pensacola, Florida, or from Laura's cell phone. So, 246 votes coming from a personal home network, which happened to be the house where Laura and Emily lived, or Laura's cell phone, that's the mother's cell phone. Around the same time that election runner flagged those fraudulent votes, Tate High School's student council coordinator learned that Emily had been bragging to other students that she used her mother's access as assistant principal at Bellevue Elementary School to cast votes for her own homecoming queen election. So that's just interesting, right? One of the candidates in this election was heard bragging to her friends that she used her mother's access as because she's an assistant principal, she actually told her friends that she used her mother's access to cast votes for her own election. So, I mean, that was, that was just bound to raise several questions on several levels. So because Laura was a faculty member in the same school district, she had privileged access to all student records in a system called FOCUS. FOCUS contains a wide range of students' private information, including grades, medical history, test scores, um, exceptional student education information, that's ESE information, attendance and disciplinary records, class schedules, date of birth, student picture, and student identification number for the entire Escambia County School District. Teachers and staff members within that school district were able to view student profiles or more, depending on their access level. So just learning about this immediately to me as a cybersecurity um, professional just tells me there's so many things wrong with this um, access level. So that means teachers all over the school district can look at student information all over the school district. So it, it wasn't just restricted to students in their own school. So as we see in this case, 
Laura was an assistant principal at an elementary school. Laura's daughter, Emily, was able to use her access from the elementary school to view student grades in her own school, which was a high school. So just imagine if that means a teacher can just view a neighbor's kid's information even if they don't go to a school just because she has that access. Or like in this case, a teacher's daughter can just view her classmates' grades, medical history. Now she can see who has gluten allergy or who is lactose intolerant or who has ADHD just because she felt like looking up that information. The investigations also found out that since August of 2019, Laura's Focus account accessed 372 high school records, and 339 of those were for Tate High School students. So that means Emily was using her mother's access to view hundreds of her classmates and Basically, not even just her classmates, so pretty much anyone she felt like looking up their records, she would just log in using her mother's um, credentials, look them up, and maybe save that somewhere on her computer and use that for like gossip or something, or just be some kind of power play to be able to say, oh yeah, I know about you, I know everything, everything about you, I know when you last went for your doctor's appointment, so just imagine the amount of information that she had access to just because her mom was the assistant principal and therefore had access to this focus system for the entire school district. That's just mind-boggling. Throughout her four years at Tate High School, Emily openly used her mother's login to access school district records according to nine written statements from students and teachers. One student in Emily's group of friends said she would look up their grades and make comments about how she can find their test scores anytime. So not only, not only was she doing this, she was actually bragging to her friends that she was doing it. And she would just randomly look up their um, grades and medical records and so many other records and then tell them about it she would log into her mother's focus account and openly share information, grades, schedules, and so on with others without thinking it was a big deal. Interestingly, investigators from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, FDLE, alleged that Laura was aware of her daughter accessing her account. Laura's yearly training for the staff responsible use of guidelines for technology was actually up to date. So that means everything that tells Laura about what to do and what not to do with these student records, all the training she needed to do to be up to date was actually up to date. So it wasn't as if she didn't know that she wasn't supposed to share her password to the focus system or that when she changes her password every 45 days, then she shouldn't share the new password with anybody because apparently, 
Our daughter had been accessing this system for almost two years. Within those two years, Laura had to change her password every 45 days. So two years multiplied by 365 days, that's how many times Laura have had to change a password. So every 45 days within a two-year period, she was changing a password. And for some reason, her daughter had access to this new password because she kept logging in and looking up hundreds and hundreds of student records from her high school. One of the witnesses stated that Laura would get a notification whenever a daughter signed into her account, indicating the name and location of the person signing in. So apart from a daughter having access to a password, every time her daughter used her account, she would get a notification. So either she knew about it and didn't do anything, or she was actually working together with her own daughter to be able to get into all these student records, and for God knows whatever reason. So on Monday, March 15, 2021, Emily and her mother were arrested and charged with fraudulently accessing confidential student information, according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Emily was taken to the Escambia Regional Juvenile Detention Center, and her mother was booked at Escambia County Jail but she was released after she posted a $6,000 bond, according to jail records. Both of them were charged by the FDLE with one count each of offenses against users of computers, computer systems, computer networks, and electronic devices, which is a third-degree felony. Unlawful use of a two-way communications device, which is a third-degree felony, Criminal use of personally identifiable information, which is also a third-degree felony, and conspiracy to commit these offenses, which is a first-degree misdemeanor. The Escambia County District Superintendent, Dr. Timothy Smith, disclosed that Laura has been suspended from her job. School officials, however, declined to say if she has since been terminated. Emily was expelled from her high school but a mother contested the expulsion, which led to an administrative hearing, but the expulsion was upheld. So it's actually interesting to see that Emily's mother contested her daughter's expulsion from school because of what she did with her username and password to access all these other students' information, which she bragged about, so basically admitting, I would say, before the fact, or was it after the fact, that she did all these things. But then her mother went ahead and contested the expulsion. But anyway, the expulsion was upheld, and Emily is no longer a student of Tate High School. On April 8, 2021, both Laura and Emily entered a plea of not guilty in court in relation to these charges against them. Laura was not in court because she waived her right to appear as she was already free on a $6,000 bond. Her case is next set for a docket hearing on July 21, 2021. Emily will be tried as a juvenile since she was 17 as of the time of the alleged crime. So 
that's um, all I have so far on this case of the mother and daughter that were arrested and charged as a result of the daughter's actions to basically rig the election for homecoming queen. The recommendations I have for both um, incidents, the first one regarding Steve Waith, who was cyber-stalking his um, former female athletes, and the second one regarding Laura and Emily, who tried to rig the homecoming election. So basically, trust but verify. So if someone is asking you to send pictures of yourself so that you can conduct some body development study, the least you can do is to verify who this person is. So you can ask them for a phone call, um, a video call. Nowadays, everyone is communicating via Zoom or some other video calling method. You can ask, you can basically ask to see their credentials. So just to verify who they claim they say they are, you can do your own open source research, also known as OSINT, open source intelligence. So just do a quick Google search, um, look for them on LinkedIn. They should have a LinkedIn profile because these days that's the number one way professionals kind of market themselves. And they should have individuals who can vouch for them. So all these are ways to just do some due diligence because Everyone can claim to do anything. Um, just for this podcast alone, I have so many people sending me emails on how they can help me market the podcast. And of course, that sounds interesting. That sounds nice. But I wouldn't just say yes to everybody because if you claim to be a social media promoter, I want to know how you became that thing. What makes you legitimate basically because as much as people are out there that would really want to help there are also scammers and all sorts of shady people so for this um, second incident regarding Emily and her mother there's something called privilege creep in cybersecurity. so in this case of someone having access to every student's record in a school district Privilege creep can be understood to mean when someone's privilege creeps onto places where they have no business. So, for example, Laura should have been able to only see students' record from her elementary school, Bellevue Elementary School. But that was not the case because Laura's daughter, who is in another high school, was able to see records of students in her high school by using a mother's credentials, but a mother works for an elementary school. So someone that doesn't have any business logging into some systems should not be able to get into those systems, even if they belong to the same school district, even if they belong to the same school, because as a teacher, you should only be able to see records of students in your class, not in another another class, not in another grade. So at that level, at this district level, limits access for teachers to see students in their school. And if you're a principal, then maybe you should only be able to see students in your own school. If you're a teacher, then you should only be able to see students in your grade and so on and so forth. So 
there should be a review on who is allowed to access records within school districts and within schools. Teachers should only be limited to accessing records for students that they they are um, they have a business accessing. So um, another note for this um, Laura and Emily's case, it's interesting because a lot of people don't realize that even if they end up actually finding them not guilty, which I sincerely doubt is the case, but then that's just my own opinion. Emily has potentially lost any chances of getting scholarships, getting accepted into colleges, getting decent jobs, even security clearances, because you never know what direction your career would take and messing something up even before you get into university, just because you wanted to win Homecoming Queen by all means. How many people remember who was Homecoming King or Queen from when they were in high school? It's so inconsequential, but I guess different things mean different things to different people. So for Laura and Emily, becoming Homecoming Queen was kind of like a very, very big deal to them. So they were willing to do everything it would take them to um, become homecoming queen. Who would have thought she would end up in jail, literally in jail, on the week she became homecoming queen? It's just, I don't know. So that's all I have for today's episode of The Beat Picture. The episode is produced, edited, and audio engineered by yours truly, Bidemio Logunde. Please join me again next time as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity topics, news and events, and how they can be applied to our daily lives for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness. Make sure you subscribe to The Beat Picture on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Please share the show with everyone you think might benefit from it. And for questions, comments, or any suggestions on which topics you would like to hear about on future episodes, please send an email to bideme at thebeatpicture.com. That's B-I-D-E-M-I at thebeatpicture.com. You can also find me on Twitter at beatpicture. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your podcast platform allows you to do so. It would really help to promote the podcast and make it show up on recommended lists. Thank you for your time. God bless and talk to you next time.